Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Giving a lecture for the Thomistic Institute is always a challenge. The audience can vary widely. Some Thomistic Institute regulars are just beginning their encounter with St. Thomas. Uh, I've given this talk before, and people have just come in out of the biology department, and they, they want to hear some quack talk about the soul, uh, and they've ne- they don't even know who Thomas Aquinas is. Uh, other people uh, are spending their days reading Thomas Aquinas in Latin. Uh, so my hope is that we'll have some time in the Q&A to bridge whatever gap there might be in the room here tonight. So I want to begin with a frame and a a shift of frame when we talk about the soul. My aim is to consider and maybe even to begin to understand why someone would ever regard the soul as a biological concept, which is to say an idea or principle, at least firstly and principally belonging to natural and scientific inquiry, namely the science concerned with living things and only in a secondary or derivative or special way to moral, metaphysical, or religious inquiry. What would it even mean for the soul not to be distinctively human? What I mean by that, I hope, will become clear in a moment. But addressing this question will also invite more general reflections about natural, scientific, and empirical inquiry in general. But I think those more general themes about empirical science and the theory and practice of the empirical sciences are best brought into view obliquely when examining a more specific issue. And our more specific issue tonight is life and the soul. A few clarifications are in order about that topic and question. Uh, So first thing I'm going to do is say something about the title of my talk, Why Would a Biologist believe in the soul. In the spirit of my guild, which I I have to admit is not biology, it's philosophy, uh, I clarify the question itself. There are two similar titles for this talk that are related, but I think uh, rather different questions. I could have asked, how could a biologist believe in the soul? Okay. This question presumes that at least on the face of it, no biologist really ought to believe in the soul. The belief in the soul is something so outlandish and unthinkable, something like, how could you put uh, pineapple on your pizza? Or how could you root for Miami? Sorry, is that too soon? Uh, I don't know. It's March Madness country a little bit. 
So that kind of question, how could you believe X, often puts religious scientists on the defensive. It's helpful for them to have answers. Uh, That sort of Christian apologetic, I think it's important and necessary, but it's not the purpose of my talk tonight. That would be uh, a little bit too apologetic, too defensive. At the other extreme, I could have asked, why should a biologist believe in the soul? This, I must admit, would have been too ambitious even for me. My goal today is modest, but I don't think defensive or apologetic. I seek to describe a certain approach to life and articulate reasons why a reasonable person might regard the soul as an essential part of biological inquiry and discourse. So I don't intend to attack the theory and practice of contemporary science. I don't mean to insist that they start talking about souls all at once, at least. Uh, So I don't want to shoehorn the soul into biology curricula here at Indiana University. Uh, But I want to glimpse an alternative account uh, of how biology had been done and how the soul had been thought of in a previous era, where the soul is not merely compatible with science, but a concept somehow native to it. So here we come across uh, a more important part of my question, not just why would a biologist believe in the soul, but why would a biologist believe in the soul? In other words, how might we think about the soul as a principle of biological inquiry, the subfield of natural science concerned with living things? Now, I don't ask why. Are there any psychology majors here? Okay. I'm about to make fun of psychology majors, so I just thought it'd be good to to call them out. So I don't ask why psychologists should believe in a soul or would believe in the soul, uh, though you might think that you ought to if you're a psychologist because the psyche just is the Greek word for soul. So it's a little odd if you're a psychologist and you deny the existence of the soul. What you think it is, is a different question, maybe. Uh, But that's not my question. Nor do I here consider why someone would or could or should believe in the soul for religious reasons or moral reasons. This talk isn't about whether somebody can be a Catholic and a biologist. It's not about the compatibility of faith and reason, though I hear there's been a talk like that just a few weeks ago, so that's good and important that that kind of conversation is happening. My question, rather, is not specifically about the human soul at all. It's about what we could mean by the word soul and the concept of soul as such. So perhaps we can render the title a little less poster-worthy. Maybe I should allow half of you to take your leave now that the talk isn't what you thought it was going to be but a little bit less poster-worthy, but maybe a little more precise. Why might a biologist, precisely as a biologist, make use of this soul concept? So this is a really strange thing. Perhaps you're thinking, okay, Butachi, even if I believe in the soul, it's not the sort of thing that a biologist could talk about, even if he wanted to. Different thought you might be having, no less skeptically, is, wait, we have souls. Souls are a human thing. But that guy up there in front of the room is talking like Buster the dog has a soul. Next thing, that guy will tell us that plants have souls. Indeed, I will. Along with St. Thomas Aquinas. Part of what I want to suggest, and part of the shift of frame that I want to affect, or at any rate, the alternative approach I want to discuss this evening is the possibility that soul is precisely the sort of thing that a biologist would talk about. I also want to suggest that the soul's natural academic home, if it has any home, 
is not principally theology or religious studies. I want to suggest that it's in biology. It's not the principle of self-conscious higher-order thinking exclusively. The soul is rather first and foremost the principle of life as such in its most generic sense. For this more generic conception of the soul, I look to Aristotle. So I'm like two steps removed from, from Thomas Aquinas because I, I study Aristotle, and he is an important philosopher, but he's a pagan Greek, right? He's not, he's not a Christian. But Thomas Aquinas took quite a bit from Aristotle. Um, and so I think part of what we're going to do today is see what Thomas took from Aristotle on this question of the soul. But Aristotle was also unlike Thomas in that he wasn't principally uh, a kind of theoretical philosopher at a university. He was principally a biologist who had a lot of really interesting and important things to say about metaphysics and philosophy and ethics. But unlike Thomas Aquinas, he did biological scientific research. In that respect, Aristotle is a lot more like Aquinas' teacher, St. Albert, the patron of the central province, I think. Uh, so, um, so Aristotle, I think, is an important figure for us to understand. He even got his hands dirty. I want to look at just a brief quote, the first quote on your handout. And he says, he's basically saying, don't, don't be upset about getting your hands dirty. One should approach research about each of the animals without disgust, for in each and every one there is something natural and good. He also has a certain credibility because in Darwin's final months, he was gifted a, a new translation of Aristotle's biological works, and uh, he read it and wrote a note to the translator who had given it to him. And in that, in that thank you note, he says, Linnaeus and Cuvier have been my two gods, but they were mere schoolboys to old Aristotle. In other words, when late in his life, Charles Darwin discovered Aristotle's scientific works made available in English for the first time, uh, he was very impressed. So bio, uh, Aristotle's biological chops are, are un uncontested. And it was Aristotle, in fact, who first gave the scientific and comprehensive treatment of the soul. Seeing it as a principle of life for all sorts of living things, including trees, squids, elephants, Bustard, the dog, and last but certainly not least, human beings. He even complained, and this is another quote on your handout, that up until he wrote his treatise on the soul, most other theorists focused only on human beings. And he seems to be following the advice of his teacher, Plato, in investigating soul in general. And I also include that quote on your handout. So for the balance of this talk, I take Aristotle as a case study. He's the biologist who believed in the soul, and we're going to see why. So perhaps I should have asked more forthrightly in my title, how and why did Aristotle, in many ways the father or at least the grandfather of biology, make use of the concept of soul in his biological studies? How and why would others imitate him, precisely as biologists and not as theologians or even as philosophers? What would that mean? And what are the advantages to starting here? For thinking about life this way. These are the questions I want to consider and begin to answer tonight. A final preliminary note 
I mentioned about the audience, the mixed audience that you can have at a Thomistic Institute talk. This talk is actually directed at two very different audiences with two very different aims. Uh, one is it's directed at those interested in contemporary science, aiming to bring into view a historical scientist. And maybe uh, certain biologists can see in the practices and theories that Aristotle presents to us uh, a kind of mirror for reflection on the practice of modern science today. The second purpose and audience, it's directed at those interested in the thought of Thomas Aquinas and aims to understand the presuppositions of his theory, particularly in the human case. As I'm going to argue, Thomas's theory of the human soul presupposes what he believes about all soul. And in that, he's incredibly indebted to the thought of Aristotle. If we want to understand the mind of Thomas, we have to understand the presuppositions Thomas brought to the table when he discussed human beings and when he discussed uh, the theological implications for human nature. Okay, so the second section, the psycho or the physico-chemical, sorry, oops, got, got behind here. All right. So here is the physico-chemical challenge to a biological soul. So what stands in the way? Again, this isn't yet a question of neuroscience or the need for a distinctively human mind. That comes later. We're asking a more generic question. And in view of that, we need to read a little bit from uh, James Watson when he announces the supreme importance of his and Crick's and Wilkins and Franklin's discovery of the double helix. So he says, our discovery, put, and this is on your handout, our discovery put an end to a debate as old as the human species. Does life have some magical, mystical essence, or is it like any chemical reaction carried out in a science class, the product of normal physical and chemical processes? Is there something divine at the heart of the cell that brings it to life? The double helix answered that question with a definitive no. The double helix is an elegant structure, but its message is downright prosaic. Life is simply a matter of chemistry. Life is simply a matter of chemistry. Okay. The challenge presented here is not particularly subtle. Uh, but it's common, and it'll be useful for our purposes. The claim is this, that with each successive scientific discovery, we remove an explanatory gap that God and the soul and similar putatively religious concepts used to fill. And with each successive discovery, we realize this revolution of materialistic thinking. We find that it's ever more comprehensive and that the ph phenomenon of life is maybe very complicated, but as Watson says, like any chemical reaction carried out in a science class. For Watson, life is better understood in terms of materialistic interactions and with every passing discovery, that comes to be clearer and clearer. And the discovery of the DNA life chemical was one of the most decisive discoveries exiling the concept of soul from biology. Or so Watson argues. The only account of the soul that Watson considers and therefore rejects is vitalism. And that's underlined in the handout there. I didn't read it out, but I underlined it. So what is... What is vitalism? Vitalism, according to Watson, is the belief that the physico-chemical process processes 
cannot explain life and its processes. Now, as with any technical term in philosophy or biology or any, in any domain, uh, terms get used in very different ways. So as Watson describes vitalism here, and according to a definition that will be suitable for what we need tonight, vitalism sees the soul as part of the mechanism of life. It plays a functional role within the organic system that might be easily replaced by a more sophisticated understanding of some chemical process. Vitalism, at least according to the definition on offer, holds that the physico-chemical processes cannot explain life and its processes. So vitalism on this view holds that some further thing, a soul, is required within the process, the life processes and mechanisms. Okay? Vitalism on this view uh, might say that the soul could be weighed. And on some reckonings, the soul clocks in at a whopping 21 grams. Perhaps a vitalist reply to Watson would be that we just haven't found the soul chemical yet or the soul particle yet. But it doesn't mean it isn't there. Someone might defend the soul by keeping fixed Watkins' belief about the life mechanisms, but saying that we haven't yet completed the mechanistic story. We still need the soul to play a link in that chain. There's a different sort of reply to Watson available here that I want to consider, and one that looks for the soul elsewhere that's not in the mechanism. So is there another way? Could the soul be distinct without being magical or mystical? Here I want to consider a quote from Bishop Barron, who's a good friend of the Thomistic Institute. Uh, now, this is actually pretty old now. I don't know if you guys even know who Bill Nye, the science guy, is. Uh, you did. You still. Okay, wonderful. So some of you still know Bill Nye. The science guy. Well, he had kind of a meltdown. A few, I guess he has a number of meltdowns, but... Bill Nye had a meltdown a few years ago where he went off on philosophy. I don't know if anybody saw this. Now it's, it's getting kind of old. Um, but he, he made some rant, one of his videos against philosophy. And Bishop Barron had a really sensible video of his own in reply to Bill Nye. And, and, and in fairness, Bill Nye, he's fine now. He saw the light and, and now appreciates that philosophy isn't all nonsense. Uh, so good for him. Uh, but I want to consider Barron's reply to the science guy here. He criticized what he called Nye's scientism, which reduces all knowledge to what, what can be known by empirical science. So this is your quote six that spills over to the back page. And he concedes that the physical science can reveal all sorts of things about the chemical processes of neurons and the composition of pen and paper, but cannot, in principle, tell us anything about literature, morality, religion. Okay. Whoop. There we go. He looks pretty composed there. That's all right. I should get a better picture where he's losing his mind. But anyway, biology might inform us regarding any sorts of things, but it cannot tell us anything about whether a human act is morally right or wrong. How desperately sad if questions regarding truth, morality, beauty, and so on are dismissed as irrational or pre-scientific. It's a symptom of a, far, a more far-reaching problem, namely the fading away of the humanities. So what Bishop Barron's strategy here is to say, empirical science can tell us a lot, but they can't tell us everything. Science is doing fine. It just needs to stay in its lane. But notice that all of the questions that Barron isolates and says empirical science can't speak to 
are distinctively human things. His remarks insist upon the importance of philosophy and theology and the other humanities in addition to empirical science, which is really important and really good. But, but notice that there's something unexplored here between a neurobiology and moral philosophy. There's a, there's a whole range of things to study between the composition of ink and paper and literature study of Moby Dick. Barron's reply is defensive, or if you like, apologetic, in favor of humanistic studies and their compatibility with empirical science. These are really important things to make. One advantage of restricting a talk to uh, souls in a moral or religious or metaphysical domain, in other words, an advantage of focusing on the human soul only is that we avoid entanglements with empirical science. We don't need to talk about empirical science to talk about morality or metaphysics or theology. So according to this view, and it might be one that you brought with you this evening, uh, the soul as such is an immaterial thing. It's spiritual. It's thinking being. It's straightforwardly identified with the human mind. Now, Rene Descartes, whom some of you might have encountered, and he's no hero of Bishop Barron's, by the way, argues just this, that the soul just is thinking being. Soul just is something that's distinctively human, distinctively intellectual. It operates according to its own principles, and the human body and every other body, like Buster the dogs, operates according to its mechanistic, materialistic principles. According to Descartes, non-rational animals that lack the ability to think, they are entirely mechanistic bodies. They're automata. This is generally regarded as a modern view of the soul. It was kind of the first modern view of the soul. And it was a way of maintaining belief in the soul, even the face of the advance of modern science. It was a kind of retreat. It says the soul is not a biological or a physical phenomenon. It's not studied by empirical science because it's metaphysical. And if you know anything about Descartes, uh, you, maybe you read the meditations or parts of the meditations in an intro philosophy class. The full title of his main work is Meditations on First Philosophy. First philosophy is actually the traditional name for metaphysics, a name that Aristotle gave the study of metaphysics, in fact. So Descartes is the, the, the guy who said the soul just isn't relevant to biology. It just isn't relevant to empirical science. He retreated and said the soul is a purely human thing, something that is exactly and only thinking substance. So with Descartes in view, we can reconsider. Oh, here we go. We can reconsider Watson's approach to the soul. Part of Descartes' 400-year-old retreat is to grant this mechanistic conception of the body, to concede that to the modern science. Note that despite their disagreement about the soul, Watson and Descartes both agree that the body is entirely mechanistically run, and that if there is a soul, it doesn't govern that, uh, that world. As Ian Hacking, a philosopher of science, has said, this is on your handout, I love this quote, whenever we find two philosophers that line up opposite 
exactly on a series of a half dozen questions. They actually agree about everything. And I think that, in fact, this Cartesian view, Cartesian means having to do with Descartes, having this Cartesian view of soul and a Cartesian view of bodily mechanism is actually what a lot of people think if they believe in the soul at all. But everybody agrees that if the soul exists, it's not biological. It has nothing to do with biological parts and processes. And that's a kind of way of saving the soul. Now, this is not Bishop Barron's move. But I think that Bishop Barron's move shows us the appeal of Descartes' move. Shows us how Descartes isn't crazy. It's a way of trying to be the good guy. And saving room for this important notion. One might worry about conceding too much here, though. That we've now siloed the soul off in this religious, moral domain. And we might have lost something. But we see the temptation and the appeal. With that in mind, I want to ask, is there any way to reintroduce talk of soul to science or biology without simply reiterating the vitalist's move, at least as we've been defining it. So there's the materialist denial, there's the vitalist affirmation, there's the Cartesian retreat. Okay, is there another way? All right. Enter Aristotle. The soul as such is the principle of life as such. That's what the soul is. It is the animating principle of living or animate things. According to this account, anything that is said to be alive thereby has a soul and a soul specific to the kind of thing it is. Things that have souls and things that have life are exactly the same class of things. The Thomistic Institute, I gather, made waves a while back uh, and they started selling mugs. It said, uh, your dog is not going to heaven. I don't know if you can still get those, but they're, they're, it's one of these fundraising things they did. Uh, and it was half in jest, but also half seriously, right? And I told them that, well, also half in jest, half seriously. The other side of the mug should say, but, but your dog does have a soul, right? If you want to hold together the Thomas Aquinas view, uh, your dog's not going to heaven, but he does have a soul. At least according to Aristotle, St. Thomas, and other Aristotelians. So what does Aristotle and St. Thomas and other Aristotelians, what could they mean in saying that Buster the dog has a soul? So all of these modern views of soul were actually available to Aristotle. He was familiar with those who, like Democritus, saw the soul as like a material particle, like a breath of life kind of thing. He rejected that. Also available to Aristotle was the idea that the soul is straightforwardly the human mind, something purely metaphysical. He rejected that. As we saw in that quote, he was upset that people only talked about the human soul. He himself didn't adopt any of these views, even though they were available to him. He said and said that the soul is what he calls the form and actuality of a living body. He therefore understood the soul to have its operation and activity in the material parts and processes of a giving living thing. In most cases, the soul is therefore inseparably bound up with the life activities of a bodily organism. 
Dog souls animate dog bodies and their life activities. Oak souls animate oak bodies and their life activities. In other words, at least in the case of non-human living things, Aristotle regarded the soul as something immaterial, as it wasn't one of the immaterial parts, but inseparable from that body, that material body, namely a living body. You can see this in quote eight. The soul is not separable from the body. So this needs some unpacking. A helpful illustration, I think, is a recipe. So suppose I'm making pancakes, and I first want to set out all the ingredients on the counter. And I, anybody know the show Bluey? You guys know. Some of you know Bluey. I, I want to be a dad like the, the dog on Bluey. So I just say things that don't make sense to see if my kids are paying attention. So I set out everything on the counter, the pancake mix, the eggs, the milk, or whatever. And I, I call out, I was like, hold on, I'm supposed to have mix, eggs, milk, uh, and I, I, I also need to make the, the batter rest for 15 minutes. But there's no rest. We're all out of rest. Where's the rest? Do we need to pick up some more rest at the, uh, at the store? And the answer is clear. Letting the batter rest for 15 minutes just isn't an ingredient. Okay? It's not a material part. But it's inseparable from the material parts. It's something you do to the material parts. But it is not a material ingredient. Uh, another example that's helpful to bring into view what I have in mind and what Aristotle had in mind comes from a 20th century philosopher named Gilbert, Gilbert Ryle. So uh, some, of, some of the TI leaders were walking me to the lecture hall, and they were showing me, there's the art museum. There's, I don't know what that building is supposed to be, but I have some philosophy classes in that building. Uh, you know, showing me the different things, right? And so suppose after this lecture, you show me some other things, like there's the library, there's the place where they had all the parties where no one wore masks, even though we were required by law to wear or whatever it is, right? You have wild parties there, okay, whatever it is. Uh, and suppose after taking me around for a whole hour, I look at you and say, okay, well, look, you were taking me on a tour of the university. Yep, but you didn't show me the university. Where's the university? I mean, what would you do? You would look at me and say, like, well, wh- what do you think I was showing you this whole time? It's like, right, you showed me the art museum, you showed me the library, you showed me the, the random building that you have your philosophy classes in, you showed me this, the, the lab building where people do real research, right? You show me all the buildings, and I say, well, like, where's, where's the university, right? Gilbert Ryle says this is a category mistake. This is a mistaken question, that the, the university isn't a building like all of the other things, right? The, the university is this whole complex of buildings and activities that are done in those buildings and people who are doing those activities. Uh, the university just isn't the kind of thing that you can point to in the same way that you can point to a building. And yet, when you point to a series of buildings and a series of people engaged in certain academic activities, you're still pointing to the university. You're just not pointing to the university in the same way as when you point to the library. Here I could also insist upon the distinction between the, the bronze. I promised some of the people that, that we'd have Leo the 13th. He's the founder of my university, Pope Leo. But I could distinguish the bronze, or in this case, marble of a statue, from the form of the statue. Uh, 
Now, here's the problem. All of these examples, the recipe, the statue, the university, they illustrate a basic point, but you will find no empirical scientist denying any of this. The formal structure of a statue or a building is just as observable as the material parts, after all, and is just as available to sense experience. Uh, experience, the Greek word for experience, is where we get our word empirical. So empirical science just is like experience-based science or observable uh, and, and uh, experimental science. But let's continue with the example just a little bit. Bear with me. What if we look at a dynamic unity like a living thing? So we have a static unity in this statue. It has its shape and form, and it's just fixed. There's also the dynamic unity of the university, but that's something that's a product of human design, human choice. But humans did not design Buster. That's not actually a picture of my childhood dog. I had to pull it off of Wikimedia Commons because I don't have any digital photos of my dog, but he did look like that. Okay. So Buster the dog, he's a dynamic unity. His life functions are extended in time. They're not static, and they're also not the product of human invention or choice. Importantly, his unity is not reducible to his structure or his form, because if you've ever put down one of your pets, you know that the same form or structure persists even after the animal has died. Uh, maybe you didn't put them down. Maybe they just died. Uh, but as long as they die through some nonviolent means, uh, their form persists after death. So what we mean by soul being a principle of life isn't just like a static form like in the statue. It's a principle of all of the unified life activities, the, the temporally extended dynamic unity that Buster has, but his corpse doesn't, even if he has all the same shape and parts and structure, statically speaking. All right. For Aristotle, the soul is what gives this unity to Buster as a living thing that isn't reducible to the parts, but can, can only be seen uh, in the activity and unified functioning of those parts. Buster's soul does not survive his death, as those mugs will attest. So, how would we answer the question, where is Buster's soul? Okay. Uh, well, you don't know how to answer that question when I just show you this picture. Because you don't know if he's alive in that picture. I guess he kind of, you could kind of guess that he's alive. If it were one of those gifts, it would be easier, because you could see him, like, bobbing his head or whatever. On the one hand, Aristotle doesn't point to any one material part. Because you say, like, there's his tongue, there's his leg, there's his cute little ears, there's his cropped tail. Okay? But, so, you don't point to the soul in the same way as you point to a, one of the organs or one of the parts. Just like when you point to the university, you don't point to the university in the same way as you're pointing to any one of the buildings. And yet, there's a sense in which the soul can't exist outside of this biological unity. It's, it's inseparable from the functioning parts in their life activity. The soul is the being or activity of that very living body. 
So there's a sense in which it's true that the best picture of Buster's soul is his living body, taken as a whole, taken as a unity. As a riff, uh, the best picture of Buster's soul is his living body, is a riff on Ludwig Wittgenstein, a quote of his is on your handout. So I want to just point out very briefly three reasons why Aristotle thinks that this matters. Uh, first is embryological development. It just studying the ordered and very regular reproduction of living things such that uh, it's very difficult to tweak or mess with the uh, material processes and parts of, of animal reproduction uh, in a successful way, right? You can't, it's very difficult to do this as we've found out. Um, we're extraordinarily dependent on the natural functioning of uh, uh, these biological processes that are given to us by nature in our manipulating of them. Uh, but it just so happens that dogs beget dogs and not squid and not elephants and not human beings. And there's an ordered process here that gives unity to the whole series of material and chemical interactions. Uh, and so Aristotle thinks that what gives unity to that development, that growing up of an animal or even of a plant, is its soul. Similarly, in the case of animals, he thinks that Buster has a unified consciousness. It's not an intellectual consciousness, but he is aware of his environment. Now, that's something Descartes can't say. But in order to explain the evident consciousness that higher animals like Buster have, uh, Aristotle thought that there was this unifying thing that brought together his various disparate sense experience from the eyes and from the nose and so on and so on. And a last reason, among many, that Aristotle thought that there must be a soul to explain Buster's unified life activity is his ability to move. So when you study the motion of animals, there's like an almost instantaneous and unified reaction between various uh, uh, sense faculties and then also muscles and, 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 and the, the movement of any number of things. Aristotle knew about neurons, but he didn't know what they were. Like, he could see nerve tissue. He didn't know what it was, but he, he was aware of weird reflexes and reactions that animals had. And there's this intricate and very complicated feedback mechanism that when you see something, then you have this physical reaction, the movement, and it all seems to happen together in a unified, seamless way. And Aristotle thinks, well... Insofar as it's unified, there has to be some principle unifying it. So not only is the sense experience or consciousness of Buster unified, but so is his ability to move in the world in a unified way. Now, none of these things require that the soul be able to survive death. None of these things require that the soul be a material part. Right? It's just that the soul is posited to explain that, that harmony, that coming together of all of these active capacities uh, in a unified and uh, conflictless way. All right. Now, I want to say a word about that word that I just said, harmony. And this is the fourth section on your little mini outline I gave you. You might have heard of this theory in philosophy of mind called emergentism. And I want to say a brief word about that. 
So I've sketched how the Aristotelian understands the soul as operative in the unified life activities of Buster. And I've spoken only of aspects of animal life. I've not really talked about anything specifically human yet. Um, here, I'll come back to this. Keep Buster up for a few more minutes. All of these activities have been activities of bodily parts, and the soul, Aristotle posits, to explain those bodily activities. The soul can be understood then as a biological principle with observable effects without being reduced to some part or ingredient. But it's also not present outside Buster like a puppeteer. The soul is what unifies the body, like how a seal exists in a bit of wax or the formal likeness of Leo exists in the marble. So I think that Aristotle offers a genuine alternative to the views that we saw before, the dualism of Descartes, uh, Watson's materialism, and even vitalism. So there's a similar theory today that's called emergentism. This approach to life and to other issues in science and the philosophy of science was first introduced as an alternative to the reductive views of people like Watson. Some regard emergentism as a modern-day Aristotelian theory of these things. One way to understand what's at stake, if everything is ultimately reducible to physical constituents, then chemistry and biology will ultimately be reducible to physics, since everything they study will ultimately be reducible to what physics studies. So if you're a biology major or a psychology major, you didn't realize that you're basically a physics major, and a bad one at that, according to the reductive view of things. So emergentism was proposed as an alternative to this. It's a layered conception of reality of properties and processes that we find in nature such that uh, at higher levels, different emergent properties come about that are objects of a genuinely distinct study. So there are emergent chemical properties that are properly studied by chemistry, not by physics. There are emergent life properties that are properly studied by biology and not by chemistry or physics. And there are emergent psychological properties, mental properties, that are studied properly by psychologists and not by biologists, chemists, or physicists. So these things are not reducible to their constituent, part, constituent parts, and they're a way of understanding these forms and functions that we are talking about in the case of Buster. The view, as at least it's sometimes described, has clear similarities to what I've been describing. In neither case is life or the soul understood to be a special kind of component or ingredient. In neither case is life or the soul eliminated or explained away by lower level mechanisms. Life and its many various features and activities emerge as somehow distinct from but dependent on what's below. So far, things sound familiar, but a lot turns on this word somehow. How are they somehow distinct from the constituent parts? On that point... I want to consider another third way account of soul. Again, this was available to Aristotle, and he called it a harmony theory of soul. He says it was popular in the court of public discussion, but he strenuously rejected the theory of soul as a harmony or tuning of a musical instrument. According to this theory, the soul is in the body like a harmony is in a lyre or a guitar, a kind of tuning of a stringed instrument. 
It exists in some sense as distinct in higher order than the strings, emerging, as we might say, from the features and activities of those parts. Indeed, given Aristotle's own insistence that the soul exists within that living body, we might find this harmony view very attractive. And some even interpret Aristotle this way, though they're wrong about that. Still, Aristotle gives the following reason for rejecting the harmony theory of soul. He says the soul is the cause and principle of the various activities and parts of the living body. Harmony, as Aristotle describes it in a musical instrument, is the result of the disposition of the parts. It's, as it were, a bottom-up theory. But in the case of Buster, the soul comes first and organizes and determines the lower parts and activities. Harmony is a bottom-up phenomenon. Soul is a top-down phenomenon. The harmony theorists, in other words, get the causal story backwards, according to Aristotle. There are other problems he raises, but this is enough for us today. A similar question is, is, is being raised right now among emergentists. There's strong and weak emergentism, top-down and bottom-up emergentists. And for those that are interested in these kind of debates, maybe there'll be some time in uh, the Q&A. But I'll just say that those who reject what, what is now called downward causation, uh, they're also going to reject Aristotle's theory of, of the soul. But if the other emergentists, those of the strong persuasion, are able to give a robust enough of this account of this downward causation, uh, it's not clear why they should deny the existence of the soul. They're just saying what Aristotle said 2,300 years ago. So I've courted plenty of controversy by saying this. Maybe it's been confusing, uh, but I wanted to give a little bit of detail for those that might be already familiar with these things. At any rate, from the perspective of Aristotle and why that biologist believed in the soul, it's clear his view of the world is directed toward unified entities regarding wholes as not only prior to their parts in our minds when we understand them, but also causally prior to their parts in their very existence. Rather, looking at, rather than looking out at the world and seeing uh, disparate parts, material constituents, and processes which may happen haphazardly to coincide, Aristotle rather sees nature as consisting of unified wholes and regularly coincident parts and activities. Among the most paradigmatic of those unified beings are living things, especially animals. So here's a quote that I have on the handout. He says that when you study things as a house builder, you do not study the bricks in the wood for the sake of the bricks in the wood. You study them for the sake of the whole house. Similarly, and this is underlined at the end, one should consider the discussion of nature to be referring to the composite and the overall substantial being rather than to those things which do not exist when separated from their substantial being. So he says, study the whole animal, not the DNA molecule. He didn't know about DNA, but study the whole animal rather than the blood and the bones. And only study the blood and the bones for the sake of understanding the whole animal together. All right. We talked about emergentism. We talked about top-down versus bottom-up theories. I want to raise an important question for that first audience, the audience that's interested in contemporary science and what, what the hell is Butachi trying to urge us to think here. Uh, what difference does all this make? Okay, you said you didn't want us to talk about soul in our biology classes, so what do you want us to do? Well, 
even if you don't use the word soul in your biology classes, there really are two different approaches to the study of life. There's the very narrow parts and material processes-based approach to the study of life, the bottom-up approach to the study of life, where you focus on a, in a laser beam way on a single process. And then there's one where you continually remind yourself that you're working with unities. Uh, so just two examples of this different way of thinking about biology. Uh, one is uh, inflammation. I have a number of friends that work in medical fields. Uh, and the study of inflammation, there's some people that are studying inflammation in a very narrow way. They're looking at how a particular hormone affects a particular reaction. And all of their work every day is about cortisol, for example. Uh, there's other people who are reading multiple different journals of medical research. And they're looking at things from type 1 and type 2 diabetes research. But they're also looking at uh, organ rejection therapies and the anti-organ anti rejection meds that we give. And they're noticing that there's a number of different themes and reactions in healing the human uh, body um, where different research converges on solving this phenomenon of inflammation. Uh, it, you can't just study it from one angle. You have to read multiple journals in multiple different labs and fields in order to understand this uh, global phenomenon in the human being, inflammation. Uh, and those who just have the laser focus are maybe not going to be able to see the sort of breakthroughs that might come in the next few years, few decades. Top-down versus bottom-up. Another uh, difference is in, in gene, uh, gene expression and genetics. Uh, it used to be that we had a kind of bottom-up theory of how DNA worked, that it's in the code and that it gets expressed in the code. There it is. You have the gene or you don't. And that's what matters. Is it in the code or not in the code? And this peaked in the 90s with the whole mapping of the human genome and, and other genomes of other animals. Uh, but now, uh, genetics research, I don't know if anybody's taken a genetics class recently, but it's like it's all about not whether you have the gene, but whether it turns on. The, the, the DNA is no longer this master command particle. It's itself a tool of the whole organism living out a certain kind of life so that you and your sibling might undergo very different uh, environmental conditions that one, in one case, a gene gets turned on, and in the other case, it doesn't, right? And I don't know the details of all this. All I know is that those who used to look at the DNA molecule the way Watson does, uh, that's like last-generation genetics research. Now we're looking at the way that D the DNA, DNA molecule is itself a tool or organ of the whole organism top-down versus bottom-up. But what difference does it make? I mean, can everybody do the top-down stuff? Well, that's a really important question, and this bears on questions about empirical science generally. Uh, any engineers in the room? Civil engineers? Architects? Somebody? Computer? I don't know. Ish. So do you use Newton's equations when you're, like, designing things? If you're building a bridge, do you assume that Newton's equations are right? about mass and so on, and force and so forth? Yeah, yes. Is Newton, does anybody believe that Newton is right today? Go ask a theoretical physicist. Does anybody say that Newton's right? Probably not, right? Uh, Newton's theory has is, is been superseded by relativistic mechanics or quantum mechanics. Pick your, pick your, pick your poison, right? 
Uh, Newton could explain all kinds of things. For example, planetary motion. He could explain uh, uh, the, the motion of planets that had yet to be discovered. We used Newton's theory purely on the basis of mathematics to discover uh, the existence and mass and location of Neptune. We saw Uranus was orbiting a certain way, and we said, well, Newton uh, has to be right, so uh, let's posit the existence of another planet. But sometimes you come across phenomena that don't work that way, and this fellow, Leverrier, who discovered Neptune, noticed that... uh, that Mercury was, was causing trouble. It was rotating in a way that didn't behave according to Newtonian models. And so he said, oh, well, I'll just do the same thing. I'll posit another. I'm going to discover another planet. I, I'm going for the twofer. So he posited an existence of a planet inside the orbit of Mercury. I don't know if you learned about this planet, Vulcan. You guys learned about Vulcan in school? No, no one learned about Vulcan in school because it doesn't exist. Uh, Newtonian mechanics cannot explain the orbit of Mercury. It can explain the orbit of a lot of things, but not the orbit of Mercury because it's too close to the sun, which is a supermassive object, and the relativistic effects are too great. And it was one of the first proofs of Einstein's theory that he could explain the orbit of Mercury without any problem. So, well, what difference does it make? Well, you sometimes can't know in advance what difference does it make. And Newton's, Newton's theory works just fine in all sorts of contexts, uh, but it doesn't work in this. Right? You can't know ahead of time when a theory's approximation of reality is good enough. Similarly, in biology, you don't know uh, when the sort of narrow-minded, bottom-up approach to life and life processes is going to be sufficient. In other words, you never know when you're going to come across something like Mercury that needs a more holistic paradigm to explain the phenomena before us. Okay, I want to end now with something for that other audience by considering the so-called human difference. While regarding the soul as the form and actuality of a living body, and therefore, in most cases, inseparably tied to bodily life operations and activities, Aristotle does still leave open the possibility that human beings are special and that we have certain distinctive human activities, namely intellectual ones, that might not be actualizations of the body. In view of these life activities that are not biological but are intellectual, we might be in a position to say that the human soul, although it is a principle of life, It is also a principle of a very special kind of non-bodily thing for us. In other words, maybe there's something to the idea that the human soul is metaphysical. Three brief remarks are in order. First, Aristotle is quite clear that the intellectual functions of the human soul would not be the subject of empirical or biological study since they would not be the actualization of bodily parts. So this might be what some of you are thinking of when you think of the soul. Free will, intellect, these sorts of things. Uh, And for Aristotle, those happily lie outside of biology and happily lie outside the proper scope of my talk. But he does recognize that such activities and capacities do belong to human beings 
and may extend outside of the biological conception of soul that he advances. Second point, even those intellectual, special, metaphysical activities understood as acts of embodied rational animals presuppose some bodily operation. Therefore, the unified sensory consciousness, which we share with Buster the dog, is something that our intellectual operation presupposes. There already needs to be a unified consciousness there in the animal soul for our intellectual operations to operate in a distinctively embodied human way. Again, according to Aristotle's theory. So his account of the distinctively human soul first presupposes the soul as a unifying principle of our life. And so the human soul doesn't supplant that biological background, but enhances it. So for the case of the intellectual soul, we can more easily see how the intellect interacts and shapes bodily motions. Interacts with and shapes bodily motions. Like in music, dance, playing the piano, flying a plane. Intellect is operative in our bodily consciousness and our bodily activities. Unified bodily life still remains part of what the intellectual soul explains. And therefore, even the intellectual soul presupposes those biological features and powers and and roles. Okay, third point. Given that unity between the intellectual soul and our bodily life, Aristotle does not say much about the separated soul or the human soul after death. All he says is that nothing stands in the way of the human soul surviving. Thomas Aquinas is rather very explicit about this. The human soul does survive death for him. But he also says that without the divine assistance, the separated human soul is confined to an unnaturally limited existence. The human soul can survive death, maybe, but it's not able to flourish or function as it ought by nature. We are supposed to live as ensouled bodies. When our souls exist separately, we human beings are dead. This is a key part of Aquinas' understanding of the Christian doctrine of the resurrection of the body. That without bodily resurrection, we are unable to enjoy our most natural human life in the proper sense. Therefore, at least as Thomas Aquinas is, as far as Thomas Aquinas is concerned, he was not at all tempted to this non-biological conception of soul that motivated Descartes. There's no retreat in Thomas Aquinas on this question. Rather, the embodied biological context of even the human soul is so essential that for Aquinas, we can't even understand what the soul's separate existence would be like without revelation and grace. So given these three points, it's clear that even in the case of the human intellectual soul, there are advantages to beginning with the soul as a biological notion, so that whatever happens to be distinctive to us as human beings presupposes this prior and more generic biological conception of soul as such, that is, soul as a principle of life. It may turn out that Descartes' conception of soul, that where the soul is always just thinking being that is set apart from the world of biology and bodies, Maybe that view is far more widespread than I would like at any rate.
And it might even be widespread and common among those claiming to love and follow St. Thomas Aquinas. Descartes' conception of the soul might creep into the most mystically minded people, even against your own better judgment. What many of us have taken to define the soul as such, that it's only a thinking thing, that it's a distinctively human thing, at least for Aristotle and St. Thomas, they rejected this. Those of us who want to understand the thought of St. Thomas, at any rate, must begin with the sort of reframing I have been urging in this talk. If we aren't careful, we're liable to read St. Thomas through a Cartesian or Descartes frame of reference. And we'll come out the other end with a very different view of St. Thomas than he really held. If, on the other hand, we want to work hard and start from an ancient and Aristotelian framework in understanding the soul, one that is first and foremost a biological notion, we can come much closer to understanding the mind of St. Thomas. Although, even according to Aristotle and St. Thomas, the human soul may be special, it may have features and activities lying outside the scope of natural science. Even if that's true, the embodied manifestation of those special human activities presuppose this generic and biological conception. We may be intellectual like angels, but unlike angels, our intellectual life is embodied. So if we want to study human nature with the mind of St. Thomas, an approach with many advantages, I think, we should presuppose the very same things he did namely a unified and unifying principle of living things as such. Only when we do that can we understand human beings as rational animals and human life as a very special case of an embodied animal life. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.